Hey, Parker, what's swirling in your mind now during our November post-election podcast? Well, the image of the very diverse crowd that gathered in the streets to celebrate as the election results became known. People who've been disenfranchised in this society really leading this parade. How about you? What image comes to you? That image of Vice President-elect Kamala Harris standing at the podium in her suffragette white. Just this sense of gratitude for all the women whose shoulders we stand upon. Amen. And and those two images take us right to the growing edge of Mm -hmm. America and also to our opportunity to welcome listeners to this edition of the Growing Edge podcast. I'm Parker Palmer. And I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and habit to us and how we live between the words. So, so Parker, you know, I, I think we need to maybe do a, a quick little disclaimer. Um, when we were in conversation to talk about how and what we'd be talking about in this um, podcast, it was after the election, but it was before the results had been finalized. And so we were talking a lot about things that we would need to do, to address, no matter what the outcome. Right. Um, although I must confess that what was moving in my mind at that time, Carrie, was pretty much what's still moving in my mind, mm-hmm. because there have been such strong through lines um, this whole last four years, five years, really, yeah. into the present day. Then I guess the question would be, you know, what are your primary takeaways of the election itself, you know, the last four years, five years uh, of the American experience? I mean, what, you know, what are you thinking about? Right. Well, I think like a lot of white Americans, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I, I need no more convincing. I have, I've never needed a lot of convincing, but I need no more convincing that race is the problem, issue, moral um, imperative at the heart of American culture, American history, and American politics. Um, I just don't think anybody should underestimate the extent to which this race, this contest over power, has been shaped by, on the one hand, racial animus, and on the other hand, hope among people who have been disenfranchised for 12 generations in this country, for 240 years, watching people like me uh, try to get it right. And by that, I mean white, privileged, educated people with access to power or actual power who just haven't understood very much for 240 years. To me, the most uh, glaring examples of that are the number of white folks who still claim that, no, they don't have white privilege, uh, that that's some kind of invention, but it isn't. I'm, I'm drenched in white privilege, and so is every white person. Do bad things happen to white people? Of course they do. They've happened to you, they've happened to me. But I can almost guarantee that with the jobs I didn't get, or the apartments or homes that I wasn't able to secure, 
the re reason was not my race. Uh, and I never had to give my kids the talk about how to walk down the street or what to do when they're stopped by the police. Um, one of my kids was, in fact, stopped by the police. But it had zip to do with race. And it had everything to do with bad driving. Hmm. So, um, it, you know, I think we just have to clear that field and acknowledge that not only uh, slavery was, and it was horrific, but the racism that drove slavery still is. And I, I have to say that in my humble opinion, but my clear and determined opinion, um, the forces that drove the presidency of number 45 were highly racist. And he encouraged racist attitudes and racist actions. Um, we could go into great detail about that, but I won't. I think the evidence is clear for anyone who approaches it with an open mind. I also think, as you know, Carrie, I've said this for the last year, that it's a cop-out for white people to limit the notion of white supremacy to people who wear hoods and burn crosses um, and do mm -hmm. horrible things in the dark of night. Um, I have elements of white supremacy in me, um, and I'd urge everybody to, every white person, to go on that journey alone or with others of trying to examine yourself about this. My, I've never been a hater of anybody categorically, but somewhere within myself, I've realized that I spent a long time thinking of the white way as normative. That is, the normal way, the white way of speaking, the white way of celebrating Christmas, uh, the white Christian way of celebrating Christmas, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't hate anybody because of that, <clears throat> but that planted seeds, which led me to look at other people's practices, other people's um, norms, as odd or different, and sometimes a little scary, which is off-putting in a very subtle way to me and could lead easily to grosser forms of racism. Um, so I've been very illumined by the writing of Ibram X. Kendi, K-E-N-D-I, mm -hmm. who um, has a very simple piece of advice, or really, I think, a moral mandate. He says, there's no such thing as a person who doesn't have a racist bone in his or her body. It just, it's like a unicorn. It doesn't exist. And I believe that's absolutely true. We know enough about implicit bias and the ways we look at things from psychological, uh, psychological studies to have to, you know, say, yes, that's the case. So Kendi goes on to say, every moment of every day, you have a choice. You, 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 you can either be a racist or an anti-racist. And an anti-racist is someone who stops, who sees and hears what's happening, and who pushes back on it. Uh, when an uncle sends an untoward meme on email or, or posts it on Facebook, or a friend says something that is, is a racial slur, you can say, no, that, that doesn't speak for me. Uh, that's destructive. 
that's an anti-racist act. It can be very simple, and it may strain some friendships, it may break some family ties. But if you want to be an anti-racist, you speak at that point. If you want to be a racist, you stay silent, because silence is one of the big uh, animators of, of racism. And I love Kendi's formulation because it means that day by day, minute by minute, I have a choice yes. about who, who, how I want to show up in the world. Yeah. There's nobody here saying, Kendi certainly isn't saying, that just because you're born in white skin, that makes you a racist. <laughs> that, that's nonsense as it is also nonsense that just because a person is born in a black skin, um, that says something negative about them. It's all nonsense. But what makes sense is this notion that every day, minute by minute, I have inner work to do about how I respond to the world around me. And I'll just say one more thing before I flip the question back to you. (laughs) Um, On the question of white privilege, when I talk with my white friends and colleagues and neighbors about this, which I really feel urgently needs to be done. And they push back on the notion of white privilege. I give this simple example. Take the five most um, egregious things that President number 45 has said in public and gotten away with. And ask yourself, how many of those Barack Obama could have said Mm. in public and still had a political career or really much of a career of any sort? Two examples. When number 45 was in Iowa before he got elected, he said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and still get elected. He actually said that. There are tapes of him saying that for someone who thinks that's fake news. And the tapes aren't doctored, by the way. Can you imagine Barack Obama saying that and not having millions of white Americans screaming because it so fits the racist stereotype of what black men do? Put that in quotes because, of course, they don't do it at anything other than the rate or less than the rate of white men. I mean, our our own counterterrorism people say that it's right-wing white fascists who constitute the greatest threat to national security. And then, of course, you have to go back to what number 45 said on the bus to Billy Bush Mm -hmm. before he was elected about women. Can you imagine Barack Obama saying anything vaguely like that and having a future in politics. No, because it's white privilege that allows number 45 to get away with it. I, this is, I know this is hard for some people to hear or think about, but I don't see a way forward in this country if we white people don't think about it. And we better think fast because by 2045, over half this country will not look like us. So, Carrie, what about you? Wow, well, there's a lot. There's a lot to think about in terms of what you just said, and um, and it's been part of our conversation here on the Growing Edge. You know, over the over the past while, and this election, you know, really did underscore so many of the things you're talking about. Um, 
I think part of what I'm trying to hold space for right now is that um, I honestly thought that 2016 was some kind of aberration. Whether you, you liked her or not, there was baggage with Hillary and that there was uh, extraneous circumstances of all different kinds. It was a complicated time period and for whatever reason, because I, I don't think 45 actually saw people, he was able to convince people he, I see you, you know. And so, but we didn't really, we hadn't really seen him govern yet. So I thought there was an aberration there. And the fact that this election has been close, um, I'm, I'm holding space for that because that's, that's really hard for me. Um, you know, there's, there's a great deal of, of um, you know, sorrow in that for me and anger and uh, this sense of, okay, where do we go from here with that understanding um, that there's definitely this, it's not just this dark underbelly, but there's a wide swath of racism and sexism in particular in, in our American consciousness and DNA. You know, so, you know, so I'm holding space for that. You know, what do I do with that, that knowledge? Um, you know, but I'm also holding this sense of hope because, uh, because people did come together from a really diverse gathering of people, young people, older people, uh, people of color, white people, I mean, women, people who are maybe politically more far on the far left of it, and people who lean more toward the center. There was really an incredible coalition uh, of people coming together uh, and working so hard for the last four years to make a statement that this is not all right, that the dehumanization of other people, what we've seen happen in the last four years, this sense of uh, a green light to bullying, a green light to a certain kind of, of, of being uh, in the world with one another, that, that I don't know, that encouragement of our, you know, not our better angels, but our lesser natures. So mm. I'm holding that right now. I'm holding this sense of, gosh, there's a lot of work to do. And I'm, I'm ready. I'm a folk singer. I'm going to roll up my <laughs> sleeves and start the work tomorrow. Uh, but I'm also holding this. I also need to breathe and be grateful and to celebrate, enjoy that love found a way. Because mm-hmm. yeah, that's absolutely. how I see it. Love found a way. And, yeah. and so how do we build on that? How do yeah. we work with that? And go forward. So that's that's kind of my takeaway right now. I'm holding both in some yeah. kind of, as you would say, creative tension. That's a real Parker <laughs> phrase. I'm holding well, you know, creative what, tension. <laughs> well, one of the reasons that I love talking with you is is that you remind me of that other side, and it's sort of, you know, and I urge everybody to have a friendship like this. It's a, we do a, a sort of bad cop, good cop routine, you know, where I'm the bad cop, I'm growling at stuff, and and you're, you know, expressing the hope as only a folk singer and like a real human being can. So I'm living into the 
grumpy old man uh, <laughs> image, but from the left. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's better. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot to laugh about here. But I, I, I take the same inspiration that you do, Carrie, from the energies, the force fields that you were just describing. And I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm laughing in terms of this, you know, being foiled to each other once in a while. But, but you know, I'm not saying at all. And now we make nice. This, that's a phrase that I used in my, we used in my family. Yeah. All right, you don't really get along with so and so, but it's Thanksgiving and you get together and everybody makes nice. Yeah. You know, let's pretend. Let's it's pretend. Kind of, and so and so just kicks somebody under the table. But we make nice. And part of that is that we're going to make this work today. You go make the mashed potatoes. And, but that was the phrase that I remember hearing. It's like, okay, just, just make nice, Carrie. You know? yeah. and, and let's talk about that because, you know, we both know that there's a, next, there's a lot of next steps, right, depending on who we are and what our gifts and limits are and how we feel called. But I think one of the things where you and I are very clear is that one of those next steps is learning new ways to sit and talk across the lines that divide us. Absolutely. So yeah. Another topic mm-hmm. that we've talked about a lot on this program. And I know that you and I have I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Yeah. And have got some I think new clarity about about what's required. I want number one, I want to uh, create settings, safe spaces, where people of differing political views can sit and talk with each other. As always, I want that conversation to begin with our life stories, not our political opinions, because that just, that abstract stuff goes nowhere. But if we can understand each other at the autobiographical level, then I think we begin to get somewhere. But I now am clear about a couple of conditions, and I'd, I'd love to you know, talk with you and also get feedback eventually maybe from some of our listeners about this. Um, One condition for me is that I, we need to stop reaching for the farthest out group of those who think otherwise. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm never going to have a conversation with a proud boy, as that group is called. I'm never going to have a conversation with people currently in the White House you know, people ask me, what if you could meet with number 45? What would you say? And I, I said, I wouldn't meet with number 45 because he just, he's stuck where he is uh, politically, psychologically, pathologically, however you want to call it. He's just stuck. He keeps, it's the same old, same old. And I don't have time or energy for conversations like that. And I think sometimes we make the mistake of reaching too far. Let's, let's, not reach for the person who's a hundred miles away from us on these issues. Let's reach for the person who's five or one mile away from us and see what might happen. The second thing I'm thinking about, and I'm not sure you and I have talked about this really, but or at least in these terms, um, I'm, I've been thinking a lot lately about going into those settings, into those conversations, offering something that at the moment I'm calling a conversation covenant, uh, an agreement between two people about some basics in this conversation, which if we can't agree, then we shouldn't even try. And I'll give you one 
thing that's really clear to me, one element of that covenant. Because it's not simply about, let's not use swear words or let's not hurl insults. That that's I just kind of take that for granted. But this one element that I'm clear about is, will you agree with me that when there is a matter of fact in contention between us, where I say, this is a fact, and you say, it's fake news. Would you agree with me that we uh, can both commit to some simple research, Google makes it easy, before we come back to discuss this issue, in, in which we each come up with the best information we can on whether this is a fact or not, hmm. and then share it with each other, not yeah. only, not just the words that we found, but where they, who spoke them and where they came from. Mm-hmm. Are you, in other words, are you willing to do a little reality checking with me? Um, I may have the yeah. facts wrong. You may have the facts wrong. We both may have the facts wrong. But if we can't agree that somewhere there's a fact that bears on this, I mean, he either said it or he didn't say it. He either did it or he didn't do it. You can't have it both ways and you know, on sequential days. Because conversations are truly a waste of time if we don't share that covenant. So I don't know. That's a way, that seems to me to be a step forward. Possibly, I'd like to work on it. Yeah, I mean that's a. I think that's a really powerful thought and idea. We have not talked about that and that's idea of a covenant where we can jointly uh, agree to being open enough to researching and being open with you know, where we're getting our information and how that's being gotten. So, uh, yeah, I think I think that's important. I, I do have to be honest with, you know, I do have a sense of discouragement because of, you know, the chasm, you know, and, and that a lot of things that would just be kind of givens or a fact that you could kind of rely on have been really uh, delegitimatized. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so, so there's some work to do in, in the area you're talking about. I also have a sense that, again, this I, I don't want to just make nice. This I was reading a wonderful blog today by uh, uh, just a wonderful young author, Courtney Martin, and she was talking about calls for unity and that this is important, this idea of how do we find a way forward and staying curious, moving into those next conversations, but not at the at the price of acquiescence to racism, sexism, dehumanization of other peoples. There, there are some things that it's not about a compromise. You know, it's not right. about, well, you know, racism and sexism and all the, all the, all the isms and the, the dehumanization of someone we consider other. That's not just a political choice. Right. That's not right. just... Uh, a lifestyle choice, in yeah. in, in a sense, there there is a moral grounding for me personally. Right. Then I and can't you, I can't you know, walk into a, a a conversation saying, oh no, that's all okay for you know because that's just yeah. your lifestyle choice to yeah. consider whole groups of people as not being as worthy as yourself. You know exactly. that's that's just not a conversation I can enter into uh, in good faith. 
And, you know, I, I can be curious about where a person is and how that happened or how that um, has become some kind of principle for them, but I can't condone it. And there, you know, there's that step. And uh, in this wonderful blog, I think everybody needs to check out Courtney Martin because she's saying some really powerful stuff right now. Um, and, and for me, giving me some really wonderful language. But this idea of fierce moral leadership right now, that yes, we need unity. Yes, we need that to find that difficult way forward. But we also need kind of fierce love. You know, I'm thinking about uh, our wonderful conversation with Valerie uh, Cower when she talked about revolutionary love, love that is fierce. And I think we need that kind of leadership moving forward and from our own selves and how we move forward, that fierce love. Yeah. Um, and what does yeah. that look like? Yeah, I, no, I like those ideas a lot, Carrie, and I'd like to you know, talk about fierce love more in a minute. But just to loop back to that very important first point you raised, that um, Courtney Martin has has really been taking leadership on. I, I think it's what some people have talked about as false equivalencies. Yes. Uh-huh. We've got to get rid of false equivalencies. And, you know, the, the most notable public example of that um, was in Charlottesville when number 45 came out the next day and said, well, there were fine people on both sides of that of that event. And, of course, he was wrong, just flat wrong, and that's not fake news. Because when you've got on one side um, neo-Nazi people uh, telling the Jews to go home and telling black people to go home, that we're going to take back our land, it's not only incredibly stupid, it's incredibly wrong, and it's a manifestation of evil that is no different in its fundamentals than what what drove that historical event called the Third Reich and the Holocaust and American slavery in ways that we now all agree, mostly if we're not totally wacko, were evil. And, and you know, yeah. this is a moment in history when we have to be able to say that not 50 years later, but yeah. right now. And so there are some conversations that just won't go, uh, and I, that like you, I can't participate in, if they're based on these false equivalencies. You know, that it's okay to have a government policy that loses the connection between 530 kids from south of the border and their families, maybe forever, because they just didn't take the time or bother to create a system that would keep those those kids connected to their families. Somebody please tell me how that in, in spirit or fundamentals is any different from what the Nazis did in Germany. It isn't. It's you know, The numbers are smaller, but I don't care. One kid in that category is wrong. And, um, and, and so it goes. So, we're, you know, we're now fighting along with this fact-free universe that we now live in. We're now fighting the false equivalency universe. That false equivalency, and, yeah. yeah. And I think that I th- that's all related, 
And it all has to inform these conversations that some of us are really eager to have. It's just that we now know more clearly what the boundaries are around those. But that takes us to fierce and courageous leadership as well. And I think too, you know, I think acknowledging, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be really open personally here with, I sometimes laugh and say as a kid, you know, here's my parents who are, my mom was a very private woman and here, here I come walking in the folk singer, like, let's talk about our feelings you know, <laughs> with everyone in, in, in a song in public, you know, but I understand this, this desire right now for some quiet are we have been battered with this onslaught of just vitriolic dialogue, not even dialogue, and, you know, violence in, in, in language, and particularly for some communities, violence physically. And we've been battered for a long time with that, and this longing for a little quiet, you know, t- to find some some centering point for that for myself and and so I'm you know I've been reading a ton of Howard Thurman lately which has been really helpful for me there's a great book of his called The Centering Moment and but how do you find those moments of quiet that internal quiet that helps you when the world is can be pretty confusing or hard or harsh at times so there's there's a sense of longing for that, uh, but again, not at the. But he never talks about it at the expense of fierce love, and engaging in the world with a fierce sense of love. Um, the other day, um, it was the day before the election, and it's it's not one of these moments I'm really proud of. But you know, I walked into a um, a grocery store and I had my mask on. It was the store had a mask policy, and. It's one of the places where I feel like I can go in at a certain time. I can go in quickly, you know, and numbers are rising through the roof in the Midwest right now. It's it's a dangerous time for all of us. And while I was standing in line, a person walked up with no mask and obviously... A man, a, right? A man, a, man. A, a quite large man, you know, in terms of presence, you know, me on my, <laughs> on a good day when I'm really feeling good, I'm almost 5'4". So, <laughs> so, and there was a, a person right behind him who was quite elderly. Here's these two wonderful cashiers who need the job, two young women. And I turn around and I took them to task um, mm-hmm. and said, you need to wear a mask for yourself and for everyone around you. Which kind of goes against a lot of my, you know, like that make nice, don't make waves, particularly as a woman, you know, that, that pull to negotiate, to find these, these quiet ways of working sometimes, you know, we're, we're encouraged to do that. This mother bear came up at me and just said, yeah, yeah. You, you need to take care of yourself and you need to take care of everyone around you right now. And he was not happy with me. Yeah. 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 And it became well, quite that's an a Martha, That's the Martha energy in you, right? Yeah, but that's... it became quite a, a, a really uh, uncomfortable altercation uh, in terms of him being very upset with me for calling him on it. Yeah. So yeah. I, I have to, how it all played out was not my finest moment, but <laughs> I was really glad 
<laughs> it was not my finest moment. And I've had to kind of like do the work of, okay, Carrie, where would, where'd you cross the line? You know, because from Mother Bear with fierce love to like, <laughs> you're questioning who's the responsible adult here. I have a mask on. You don't. Case closed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, no, well, you know, uh, Carrie, I heard the, I heard the story pretty much after it happened and I'll say to you again what I said to you then. It was one of your finest moments. It's just another category of finest moments. That's all. You know, they come in varieties. And that kind of mother bear courage, that kind of Martha energy that you sing about in One Woman and a Shovel, I mean, that's a noble thing. Um, if, if I could have talked with him ahead of time, I would have said, do not try it, man. She's really nice, <laughs> but she takes no prisoners. I know this. <laughs> well, my point is with that, in terms of being really honest about that, is that, yes, I, I am, I'm okay with standing up for myself. I'm okay for standing up for the people around me. I'm even okay with standing up for him, you know, take care of yourself here. That you are worth world holding, you know, wearing a mask for yourself, and everyone around you is. I I feel really good about that, but I I, um, I have to say I, I went a step farther than my value system, so I think that's part of the process here. How do we negotiate when being really human happens that you get angry? or you get frustrated, or you just don't know what to do, and you do the wrong thing, or you say the wrong thing. And then you have to pull back and say, for me, it's like, all right, all right, that's when I read some more Howard Thurman, <laughs> who is like, all right, we're so human, and we're, we're working on this, we're figuring this out. Keep grounding yourself in this fierce love, and you're, you're going to make mistakes here. You're just gonna. Don't keep yourself from engaging. And don't keep yourself from from stepping into even situations that are uncomfortable because you might make a mistake. Or you might have to learn something from it. Figuring out what was really right about that. And fierce love is, is right. And then how does that always stay within your value system and how you want to be with other people to never dehumanize even people who you feel are not, that you're having a hard time understanding, you know, that's staying curious, trying to find that way forward without making nice, you know. I think we're all going to make mistakes in terms of how that all plays out. But it can't be done without taking the risk of stepping in into that space and and trying to work with it and finding out where your value systems are like what we were talking about you were saying you know there's a place where you have to stop and say okay now we need to consider facts and return to our our research and come back together now we need to say this is not just a um a lifestyle choice to Treat other people as as if they're not as worthy as you are. That's that's not part of the conversation we're going to have here. Yeah, I I would yeah, that story speaks to me, Carrie. It speaks to me powerfully, and I have a little different take on it. It's sort, sort of like we're at one of those improv moments of yes and you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is a great moments. You know, my sense is that. There needs to be, there should be an implicit covenant. I'm going to go back to the covenant 
idea. There should be an implicit covenant in an interaction of the sort you had at the grocery store. And in and part of that covenant ought to be that a, a man who's over six feet tall and quite stout, who's not wearing a mask, does not do a number on a woman who's 5'4 and is asking him to wear a mask in, the, in a circumstance where the ex, that request is perfectly reasonable and nicely made. That's just wrong. That's a false equivalency, that his way of being in the world at that moment was this, you know, just his choice to be different from your way. I, I, that, that doesn't play with me. My response to him, my gut response, and I'm not saying this should be my final response, but what I worry about with a lot of us white middle-class Middle Westerners, including myself, is that when we get quiet too early, we, we evade, which you're clearly not doing here, but there's a kind of permanent quietude that people go into Yes. After they've gotten to that edge and they scare themselves with it, you you haven't scared yourself. You're being reflective about it, and and that then they devolve into the silence that aids and abets evil. And so you know, I'll tell you what rose up in me about the counsel I would give this man. I would have looked at him and said, "Get a life." You know? <laughs> <laughs> but, but then, you know, five minutes later, if I calm down, I'd translate that into, please, sir, take a retreat, pray, meditate, you know, whatever your thing is, chant Om, light a candle, and, you know, kind of get your feet back on the ground. Um, you know, I'm saying that humorously, because clearly that advice wouldn't play. So get a life is about as good as, as I think can be done in that situation by way of spiritual guidance. Well, my... You know, my my whole point of even bringing up that is that it's going to be messy. You know, it's not going to be this really clear-cut, easy path forward from here. Um, you know, I've said many times, love is simple, but people are really complicated, right. and and so yeah. we're we're going to be needing to have these conversations. Um, with people also that we we know and we love and we trust. This idea of white people talking to white people about race is a really important concept, you know, that that we need to talk amongst ourselves about about, you know, what we're experiencing with this and and how do we move forward with this and what does it mean to be an anti-racist? Choice by choice, day by day. You know, that conversation needs to happen. We also need to have these conversations with people we love and trust as well. It's like, well, what does it look like? Um, what does love as public policy actually look like? What does fierce love in the world actually look like? And what is um, nonviolence in terms of how I make my stand in the world and how I move forward in the world? What does that mean? And when I fall short of it, how do I learn from that you know how do i learn from that how do i let that inform the next encounter i have you know my main reason for even telling that story is that it's going to be complicated so i would say you know that you can always count on me for a living example of messy in situations (laughs) like this right so i'm here to prove your thesis I, I'm sort of in the middle of the mess, day in and day out. 
you know, teetering on the edge between angels and beasts, <laughs> and sometimes going this way and sometimes going that. So, you know, treat me as the poster child for your whole thesis here. And, and I, I, I totally agree with you. You're, <laughs> so you're right. And it's the mess in which we generate. It's the primal ooze, right? In which new life for ourselves and each other can be generated. And we, we, need, we need to do that. We need to go there just like a gardener needs to go there. And I, and I think, too, I, I, I just wrote a song a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's based on a Howard Thurman quote. Like I said, I've been reading, I've been really grounding myself in, in his work recently. And um, called I Will Sing a New Song. And it's from a, a short little poem that he wrote about singing a new song in his life. Um, I kept thinking about how, you know, there's a personal level and there's a political level where that's happening for a lot of us. You know, we can talk about COVID and the, enormous disruption that that's created in so many people's lives and that they've had to learn how to do things in a new way. And for some of us, like myself, my entire profession has been altered. You know, work I've been doing for all my adult life has been altered. I'm literally learning how to sing a new song. And many of us are learning how to sing a new song personally during this time period. But also in this moment in history, politically, we're learning how to sing a new song. Yes, there's this big wide swath of something that's been with us since the beginning of the founding of America, you know, in terms of an injustice that that's here. It started with us and it's still here with us, but it's time to sing a new song. And that for all the issues going forward, that love did win this time, and that it's time to start singing a new song. So, so I think that's just an important concept. I, I think one of the reasons also because, you know, I, I keep grounding myself in people like Howard Thurman and John Lewis, in the words, if folks who lived and experienced and suffered so much in terms of their lives and their work toward justice could continue to have hope, could continue to ground themselves in fierce love and good trouble, you know, if they could do that. That's a huge inspiration to me to find my way in it as well. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why, particularly in the last two years, but in the last, like, month, I just, I just keep going to that well and saying, okay, I need, I need to kind of keep honoring what that voice and those lives have to say for me, you know, and, and to, to encourage me with and to, to teach me, you know. So, um, yeah, to sing a new song. Totally agree, Carrie. I'm eager to hear that song. And as we listen to it, all I want to add is if we choose to follow a uh, John Lewis or a Howard Thurman, uh, which I, with you, wish to do, um, it's a long, hard road to travel, and we will experience deprivation. We will lose friends. We will lose reputation. We will uh, lose prerogatives if we go down that road as far as they went. That's what happened to them. Yeah. And uh, that gives me reason to follow them, and it gives me reason to really assess my own capacity for how far 
I'm able to follow, which I think is a good, challenging question to live with. And I think, too, that that idea, you, you posted something on your Facebook page. I love your Facebook page. And right after the election, you, you did this be- really beautiful posting about your concept of the tragic gap and this idea of faithfulness over effectiveness and that that uh, and the importance of holding that right now, that idea. I'm, um, would you say just a little bit more about that be- you know, before, I, before I sing a new song? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm always, uh, it's always easier for me to speak after I'm lifted on your music, you know, so, <laughs> but um, the, uh, yeah, the idea of the tragic gap is, uh, in, in essence, I think, very simple, but I'm doing a lot of work, as you know, these days with young activists all around the globe. Yeah. And um, really thousands of people through various programs that reach out that way, including now the Obama Fellowship. And um, they find, young activists find this concept very encouraging because so many of them go into uh, social activism of a, of a you know, challenging sort, thinking the way I did when I was in my 20s and 30s and I was becoming a community organizer and I was taking on war and race and all that stuff. I thought... If I work hard enough with my generation on this for the next ten years, we will have fixed it up you know, <laughs> by 1975, right? That was the attitude coming out of Berkeley. And then ten years later, a lot of the people that I knew, when they realized they were they were nowhere near fixing it, and maybe not even uh, nearer than when they started, ten years later they went and signed on with Wall Street to make their fortune which was the exact opposite of their intent. And I think part of the failure there was we have this short-term American mentality about getting results, about being effective. Uh, In fact, spending a decade at trying to get results or being effective is very countercultural because the culture says you got to get results on a quarterly basis. That's how stocks rise or fall, you know, or the value of corporations rises or falls. And of course, nothing, nothing that's worthy of doing, like love, truth, and justice, is going to yield results on a quarterly basis, on a decade-long basis, or on a lifetime basis. So the question really is, for those of us who want to be in movements of this sort for the long haul, as you said early in the program, how do we hang in for the long haul? And I think one thing that's clear is that we have to let go of effectiveness as the only norm or the primary norm for our lives. I'm not saying give up effectiveness. You, you have to keep assessing that. I mean, am I doing anything worth doing in terms of results? But if that's what you hang on to, you will die in despair because these problems of love, truth, and justice aren't going to be solved by the time I die or you die any more than they were by the time Martin Luther King Jr. died or Nelson Mandela died or Rosa Parks died and on and on back. So I've simply concluded for myself that the norm that needs to come at the top of my list is the norm called faithfulness. And it's not a highfalutin religious question for me It's about asking the question, day by day, am I being faithful to my own gifts? 
Am I being faithful to the needs around me as I am able to see them? And am I being faithful to those points at which my gifts might intersect with those needs? Um, and that has within it all kinds of challenging questions. Am I being honest about assessing my own gifts? Am I being honest about you know, seeing the needs of the society farther than my own nose or my own people? Um, and am I really challenging myself to intersect at those points of, of, of need? You know, at the moment, and you have, I know, many examples of your own, but at the moment, the work I'm doing with these young activists around the world on, on several digital platforms and through several international programs is, is my answer to trying to be faithful to how my gifts might intersect the needs of the world. And of course, we all know that when you do that, the, the rewards are immense. Because I learn so much. I learn so much that I would not otherwise know from working with these folks. So to me, that's standing and acting in the tragic gap, the gap between the mess that human beings are always in and on the other side, what we know to be possible. Because as you say in one of your songs, it really happens every shining now and then. <laughs> you know? yeah. Miracles do happen every shining now and then. And, and the miracle happens in real life. You know, people make peace. People become creative, in the, not in spite of diversity, but because of diversity. Human beings are an ecosystem, become a self-generating ecosystem like, like a, a prairie once was. Yeah. So, yeah, that's the tragic gap. And it ends up, I think, in a happy place because um, it means that one can check out from this mortal coil um, saying, to the best of my ability, I was faithful. I didn't get the whole job done, love, truth, and justice, but nobody ever has. But within the, my own personal limits, which are multiple, I was faithful to I was faithful. And the things I've mentioned. If I'm able to say that, then... then yeah, I mean, what a grounding force. Not so much effectiveness, but faithfulness. That's for the long haul. Yeah, and I think just one final word on that. It, it also means, and this really means a lot to me, it means that I won't have to check out saying, um, I've spent 80 plus years on the face of the earth, and I never really showed up here as my true self with all that I had, and all that I might have offered. I can't think of a sadder way to go than the realization that you've blown an 80-plus year chance to be who you are in a way that might be of service to others. That's such, so powerful. I mean, it really is. And, and as we go forward, you know, I, I also feel it's important that... Um, you know this idea of faithfulness. That's long. That's for the long haul. We're we're talking. We're talking. Hanging in there day by day. What can I? What choices am I making daily? Um, and what am I doing to uh, allow myself to and, and to support myself in this daily work and this long haul kind of work? And um, and that means also breathing. That means taking a moment and celebrating when 
when love prevailed. It means knowing that that pursuit of love, peace, truth, and justice is going to be waiting for us there. <laughs> mm-hmm. when, when, when we finish the walk with our dog, <laughs> you, know, and when, you know, it's like, I, I feel like this idea of faithfulness also gives us some breathing space uh, because you can't keep pushing all the time. You know, that's something we've talked about on this podcast, that, that sense of breathing in our lives of, you know, moving forward, making those day-by-day decisions, and at the same time, giving ourselves a little space, giving ourselves sanctuary and and breath, and um, being able to have good conversations like we're having today, Um, you know, and and be able to laugh with one another and talk about serious topics together. I mean, I, you know, this is kind of long-haul stuff that I think that we all... We all can do, and I think we all are doing right now. Just, so yes, thank you for that kind of closing idea of faithfulness, because that gives me lots of hope, and it also well, gives me lots of breathing space. Before I say, sing, Carrie, sing, uh, which, I, <laughs> which is what I wanted to say, say right now. <laughs> let, let me just, let me just say that uh, I, 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 I fully realize that I won't make it to my maximum number of years if I fail to breathe. That that has really come home to me. So I used to kind of chuckle at that because I'm a simple-minded person. (laughs) But these days, I'm so aware that there are times when I actually don't breathe. It can happen when I'm watching the news. It can happen when I'm struggling to get this very important job done. And that I really do have to remind myself to breathe. Seems wacko, but I do. Uh, So thank you for that. Now, sing, Carrie, sing. Uh, (laughs) Okay, I will sing a new song. I don't know how No, I don't know how I've never done this before least until now learn by heart the hard and easy parts but I'm feeling it clearly the old songs grown weary I will sing a new song the old ones carried me this far and for so long but it's time to walk on lifting up my voice and heart with a new song how it grows out of the last echo a new song for new needs so i'll follow its lead here i stand all i truly am so i'll reach out and lift up this new curious cup i will sing a new song the old ones carried me this far and for so long but it's time 
came to walk on, lifting up my voice and heart with a new song. Ooh, in each life of worry and strife must be room to untangle in the singing of angels all that lasts and must surely pass all that's common and holy all that's shot through with glory I will sing a new song the old ones carried me this far and for so long but it's time to walk on Lifting up my voice and heart With a new song Ooh, I don't know how No, I don't know how Never done this before, at least until now. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation, too. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and to bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Allison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, production, and because she is fierce with love. <laughs> <laughs>